This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha and Caverns Deep below the metro area, it is episode 677 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one. My name is Matt Baum. And while some of you jerks are pumped for pumpkin spice latte season, personally, I would rather drink hot bloody urine for breakfast. I'm the internet's Joe Patrick, your head number two, and I have to ask, when did pumpkins become delicious? Sure, pumpkin pie is good, but when else does one find themselves saying, give me more of that sweet, sweet pumpkin? Right? What is this obsession with like this garbage? Like it's something garbage? you give it to dogs to help them poop better. Exactly. I don't get it. Uh, now, now look, pumpkin spice, the pumpkin spice, that's all that is, is nutmeg and whatever. But what are, we, I, what are we celebrating? We're not celebrating the pumpkin. We're celebrating the spice that makes it taste good. I don't Pumpkin spice, yes, it's ridiculous. And look, I have nothing against a drink that tastes like pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie is delicious. Yeah, I just don't understand why it's a phenomenon. All right. In this episode, we are once again reviewing a stack of new comics, and then it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to set you up with some must-read picks for next week. And before we crawl out of here to lick our wounds after the PSL crew tracks us down, we'll give you a sneak peek at our Patreon Extra, where the Labor Day celebration has begun, and we are counting down our top five hard-working heroes for hire. It's all happening in this violently anti-pumpkin spice episode, and it starts... When you got me for new time in the cigarette! PSL 13, the world's least dangerous game. <laughs> review new comics two weeks at a time on this show so we'll be starting with last week new comic book day august 24th and then we'll jump to this week's comics from august 31st that's today this time our pile is brimming with the return of two marvel titles the further adventures of a geriatric starship captain superman in the gladiator outfit spider-man's 60th birthday and it all starts with a very special issue of human target that will hopefully remind fans that this series was good when issue seven comes out sometime late next year. <laughs> That's right. It all starts with Tales of the Human Target, the one shot from DC. It's $5.99. It's written by Tom King with art by Greg Smallwood, Kevin McGuire, Raphael Abaquirque, and Michael Jannon. Here's your solicit. Building in the most critically acclaimed series of the year, Tom King and four of comics top artists tell the tale of what happened before Chance drank Luther's poison. Chance keeps up with fan-favorite members of the JLI in four connecting mysteries that lead them to that fateful day when one of them will kill the human target. Tom King and Greg Smallwood are taking an extended hiatus on the ongoing human target story, if you haven't heard. So, in the meantime, we get a one-shot featuring... I mean, the hiatus is almost over. It, it comes, Human target's supposed to come back next month. Oh, I didn't think it was. I thought this was like an indefinite hiatus, and they said it's no, no, coming no. back it, next month, but I... Eh. It was a it was a hiatus of a pre-planned length. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Yes. In the meantime, we get a one-shot featuring four stories and four different amazing artists. Each story features a different member of the JLI, and after reading this, I sincerely hope King takes on a Booster Gold story next. Fire and Guy Gardner are the other two characters, and again, his gardener is spot on. I don't know much about Fire as a character, but her motivation seemed a little strange to me, other than maybe the payoff to this plot. 
Each character has a different spotlight and deals with their story differently based on their personality. And King proves he's got a lot of love and deep understanding for them all. The art is outstanding, but no surprise there at all with this all-star cast. Like all of King's projects, you won't ever hear anyone complain about the art. This isn't just a standalone one-shot to keep readers excited, though. The final pages reveal a plot that's going to continue into Human Target 7. And if you've been reading the book, you'll know why. We've been waiting since February, and this one-shot was a nice way to whet our appetites for the return what? next month. I am giving this a huge buy it. I think Human Target, six issues in, is my favorite thing Tom King's done yet. Yes, I agree. Um, I watched but, you roll that around in your head for a minute. I did. Well, I had to think about it. Yeah. I, and I think it's just because, like, I really love the, like, 1950s, 60s, Rat Pack, Tiki. Yeah, the kind of timeless kind of sort of vibe of it. Pop art thing. Yeah, um, so uh, the style is, is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But, um, yes, I think the human target is uh, exceptional. I thought this was very good. Um, Fire's personality is that she is Brazilian. There's nothing outwardly ethnic about her. <laughs> I guess I just didn't get... When written by most writers. I guess I just didn't get her motivation. She's also a model, Matt, so if that helps. No, I mean, like, yeah, because, you know, models act like this. No, I just mean, like, yeah. the way that she was connected to this character. I was like, oh, I have to stay with them. I have to stay with I them. I mean, yeah, she was, like, all broken up about this guy dying. Yeah, and I mean, maybe they were... I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were closer than we thought, or this is the first person that she saw die. I don't know. I, I just didn't know if there was something about her. Who can who can say? No, I, I don't think so. Like, if you go by... The bulk of Fire's personality was created by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus in the 80s, even though she appeared all the way back in uh, right. Super, Super Friends comics in the 70s and was in the Global Guardians and stuff. But like she's she's Brazilian. Yes, but she's never really acted anything but like American, right. like American right. model. Um, and so this was kind of the most. Yeah, she's not like, ay, ay, ay. Or anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it. it I will say this. I I think that King's take on certain characters is very broad and that works for short projects. Yeah. It's not something I would want to see long term. I agree. Like I don't want to see a long term Booster Gold project by Tom King. Because this whole idea that Booster Gold is a complete f up all of the time. No, I would like to see like is, a booster where we see him like either bumble his way into something or figure out. Like, it's time to come to grips with who I am. It's time to, like, I've been this moron all my life, and it's time to, like, sort it I mean, out. But the thing is, is that he's done that. Like, the, he was a member of the Justice League. Yeah, but then kill him. He's a member of the Justice League. <laughs> like, he figures it out, and he gets killed. <laughs> no, stop. Um, I, I think it's, it's great for short-term stories that don't necessarily need to fit into continuity. And if that's the place for Tom King to live, great. Because I don't want to think about how Batman versus Catwoman fits. You know what I'm saying? Like, just let him play in his own sandbox. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Let him paint, let him, let him write characters, you know, paint, like paint them with the broad brush. And I'm fine with that. Yeah, I thought the art was absolutely fantastic. And uh, obviously Greg Smallwood is uh, uh, like a creature from another planet. Uh, this is a buy it for me. I really enjoy it. Speaking of the characters that work for a living, it's Damage Control number one from Marvel Comics. It's written by Adam F. Goldberg. That The F is important. I just think you should remember that. Hans Rodanoff and Charlotte Fullerton McDuffie. Art by Will Robson and Jay Fosgett. 
Here's your solicit. Marvel's unsung heroes finally get sung. After the mega-powered battles and Hulk-level catastrophes, Damage Control is always there to clean up the mess and get things back to normal. But Damage Control is much more than just a glorified cleanup crew, and this new series will pull back the curtain and reveal the secret inner workings that were previously only available to people with clearance level 8. And we'll witness it all through the eyes of Gus, a fresh-faced, eager newcomer to the company who has no idea how chaotic his life is about to become. Uh, I don't really feel like reading the rest of this. Yeah. Who cares? Uh, there is a second story by uh, Charlotte Fullerton McDuffie, who is the widow of uh, the late, great Dwayne McDuffie, which is wonderful. Uh, Jay Fosgate is the artist of that. I have to confess, I had to read this comic twice. Uh, because the first time around, it was really late, and I was exhausted, and I was just not into it. I'm so glad I did, though, because Damage Control Number 1 is a really fun read that pokes fun at the Marvel Universe in a loving way. The script by F. Goldberg and Rodanoff is packed with jokes, both overt and in the background, like the barista at Shard Bucks butchering Moon Knight's name, which I thought was hilarious. New intern Gus is in a way over his head, nearly causing the end of life as we know it because he botched his first day in the mailroom. But a cosmic problem requires a superhuman solution, leading to a series of goofy cameos that have always been part of Damage Control's charm. I really am not at all fond of Will Robson's art style. I've bounced hard off of every series I've seen him draw, and I'm a bit bummed that he was chosen for this series. I'm sure he's a lovely person, but his super exaggerated, but not in a good way, forms, random line weights, and characters that are totally jacked for no apparent reason, like seriously, bodybuilder level physiques on some of these people, are a huge turnoff for me. That said... Jay Fosgate's art on the second story by Charlotte McDuffie is a delight. It's ultra cartoony and very fitting with the absurd nature of the story, with figures transforming and popping in and out of panel like Looney Tunes characters. I also found it really heartwarming that Dwayne McDuffie's widow was able to contribute something new to his legacy. It was really neat to see that. I really wanted to love Damage Control number one with my whole heart, but the art in the lead story is a real stumbling block for me. It's not often that I let my opinion of a comic's art outweigh my opinion about its story, but this is one of those times I can only give this a skim it. Okay, I love the Goldbergs. I watched nine seasons of it, and I absolutely love it. it. It took me a little bit. Casey was into it. I wasn't at first, but then I got the formula, and I think Adam Goldberg is a super talented guy, and he's probably about our age because he grew up in the same way, and all his jokes are very yeah. dated and fun. He came of age in the 80s. Yeah. Absolutely. I did not think this was funny. It just didn't do anything for me. It was a little too cute, and I did not laugh. I wasn't, like, angry about it. I just went, no, okay. Yeah, there's that joke. Uh, I mean, the thing about about damage control solo stories is that they're cartoonish. And I get it, and I don't care. And that's kind of where I'm at. You know, like, it's... I'm not saying, like, I wanted to see a hyper-dramatic, you know, the wire version of damage control or something. I'm not saying that at all. I just think it could have been a little more clever, maybe. And... this just didn't do much for me. I didn't care for the art. I will say Fosgate's art was better in the second story. But by the time it was all done, I went, well, glad I'm done with that. I'm giving it a skim in as well. I'm not going to leave it. But I just didn't care much. This didn't do much. I mean, if me. it's not for you, it's not for you. Like, damage control 
when done as a solo story, the it it, it is a farce. Sure, and like, I'm fine with a farce. A, the original Damage Control comics were a farce as right. well. Right, and I'm fine with a farce when that farce is funny. I didn't find this especially funny. Uh, see, but uh, like I thought, like Moob Knife order for Moob Knife. Like I thought that was really funny. Sure, and and Moon Knight is standing right there, and he's like, seriously. I'm I'm glad you liked that. I thought it was it was very <laughs> clever. Didn't do it yeah. for me. Whatever. get in some real comics where people die over and over and over and over again it's called end after end number one it's from vault it's 3.99 it's written by david andrew and tim daniel with art by sanando c just like a one letter last name i kind of dig it here's your solicit life is nothing if not a series of endings school jobs friendship love until the end walter willem's end was fast and unexpected his was an unremarkable life so how is it that his story continues as cannon fodder in an endless war waged against an insatiable darkness, hell-bent on consuming all of existence. And is Walter right in believing he's arrived in the midst of a titanic battle as the one destined to finally end it? That, that's the tale of the end after end. I didn't recognize any of these creators' names, I admit. And I walked in this comic completely blind. So, here's a peek at how the sausage is made in the ziggurat. I typically don't read the solicit first when reviewing comics, so as no. not to know what to expect at all. It makes discovering a fun story or a great new artist even more exciting, and end after end did just that for me. The story moves very fast. I think it took me less than 10 minutes to read this first issue. Because of the way it's written, you're dropped directly into the action after a confusing intro that leaves you as confused as the main character. What follows is almost like a video game tutorial as the main character learns his new status quo. Sinando C's art is incredible. His sense of action rips you through the story along with the main character. I was able to stop and really look at the art with a second read, and wow, is he good. C's thick line and realistic style reminds me of masters like the late John Paul Leon, and this appears to be his first comic work in the U.S. anyway. I couldn't find any of his European stuff. I can't wait to see more of his work. And End After End was a pleasant surprise. While I'd like to know exactly what's going on, this was a good first issue. I assume they're going to spell it out soon. I'm giving this a buy it. It was way more fun than I thought it was going to be. You put this on your list. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't even heard of it. Sometimes that happens on a lighter week, right? We like, you know... It- we're superhero fans, right? Sure. And so whenever there's a lot of like big releases from the big two, it's like, yeah, okay, well, we have to talk about Thunderbolts. We have to talk about Amazing Fantasy. We and have we'll to get talk there. About this and, that. and so a lot of times stuff like that dominates the list. But when there's, you know, a lighter week or a chance to like uh, branch out and, and try something we, we wouldn't normally cover, it's always a pleasant surprise when that thing is just like out of bounds. Great. Like it knocked yeah. my socks off. Like I read this with no expectations knowing nothing about it, not knowing uh, any of the uh, creators at all. I didn't even know the premise of the comic and I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought the art was amazing. Yeah, outstanding. I thought the art was outstanding. What a treat. It's a buy it. Like I just said, we talk about superheroes a lot on this show, but sometimes we got to talk about super villains. It's Minor Threats, number one, from Dark Horse Comics. It's written by Patton Oswalt and Jordan Bloom, 
with art by Scott Hepburn. Here is your solicit. It's hard out there for a supervillain. Not the world conquerors, chaos engines, or arch nemeses, but the little guys. The ones who put on uniforms, knock over jewelry stores, and get tied to poles. And things are about to get worse. The psychotic stick man has murdered Kid Dusk, sidekick to Twilight City's premier crime fighter, the Insomniac. If in case these names are not inspiring any like thoughts in your brain of of familiar tropes, you know, read a comic book. The Insomniac's teammates are tearing Twilight apart, turning it into a police state desperate to capture a stick man and stop the Insomniac from crossing that final line in which he may never come back from. Caught in the middle are the small-time C-list villains, finding it impossible to walk down the street without being harassed by these heroes. With a bounty on the stick man's head, former villain Playtime decides to assemble a ragtag team of villains to take down the stick man and kill him themselves. That's the entire plot right there yeah. in the solicit. Yeah, they're That's not a whole kidding. first issue right there. But the goods are not in any potentially spoiled twists and turns but in the tremendous world building and character work done by Oswald and Bloom in just a single issue. Don't come into this expecting a comedy because of the talent involved. Minor Threats feels very much like a Black Hammer style mixed between homage and deconstruction of classic superhero stories, and I was really impressed with how invested I became in this world and these characters in a relatively small number of pages. Frankie, a.k.a. Playtime, has that tragic former convict story that you can't help but love and root for, forced into a life of crime as a child by her supervillain mother. And when it seems like she breaks under the weight of a world made to keep her down, it's like a punch in the gut. On the other side of the world-building coin is the fantastic work of artist Scott Hepburn. The character designs of the heroes and villains are outstanding. There's a guy... He is not named. He is a mummy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a mummy yeah. dressed in military regalia, and yeah. I have decided that his name must be Major Mummy. His name is Major Mummy. <laughs> because the, he looks like drill instructor guy from Full Metal Jacket yeah, or whatever. Yeah, he's like the unknown soldier with mummy powers. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's got like an onk on his head. <laughs> yeah, great. yeah. It's especially cool that uh, to see that many of them have quote unquote silver age versions because we get flashbacks. Yeah. And so you get to see like, here's that old guy. Here's what that old villain looked like when he was young. Or here's what playtime looked like when she was just a kid sidekick. Again, it's very much Black Hammer-ish. And I don't make that comparison to imply that Minor Threats is biting Black Hammer's style. It's a huge compliment to the work on display here and a testament to Oswald's and Bloom's too, I assume, lifelong love of comic books. The top-notch art and storytelling on display in Minor Threats number one hooked me in from the very first page. I cannot wait to see where the series goes from here. Huge buy it. I loved it. Yeah, it, this is fantastic. Scott Hepburn is exceptional, and this yeah. book is so cool, and the designs of the characters. There, I love how they designed like the good guys when they show up, they are so much more powerful <laughs> than these guys. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. There's like, you know, a Superman type character. That's like a, a female in this one. There's like a green lantern guy. That's got this gigantic fist that fires yeah. huge yellow lasers off of it. And you're yeah. just screwed. There's nothing you can do when they show up. It, it's a mob war story where you killed the wrong guy. 
somebody killed the yeah. wrong guy, and now heavies that should be dealing with space gods are coming to New York to deal with like these street level criminals, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh no, Crazy Quilt accidentally killed Robin. Or not even Robin, like somebody just like maybe just below Robin. Well, like, I mean, it's clearly Robin because the Insomniac sure. and, and Kid Dusk is clearly Batman and Robin. But uh, like, yeah, Crazy Quilt accidentally killed Robin. No, that's a good one. Yeah, like they were fighting and accidentally killed Robin. Well, I mean, like Stickman clearly meant to because he's crazy, but. But also, um, I don't think he thought he was going to. I th right. Yeah. Like who would have ever figured he'd pull it off? Right. right? It kind of seems like um, he took a shot and was like, whoa, <laughs> like I killed yeah. him. <laughs> and so and now and so now the Justice League is going buck wild, cracking down on people like Punch and Julie. Right. You know, like Bolt and Merlin and all these like loser nobodies. Yeah, like D-list villains. Yeah. And this is and their story of oh just God. like, look, yeah. we didn't want this. We just, they're just trying to do their thing. You know, like we're just trying to do our thing. We're bad guys, sure. But we're not like Galactus. <laughs> like we can't hang with this kind of pressure. Right. And it's a really fun look at it. There's a lot of these homage comic stories out there right now. And it's easy to lose something like this in that because like, oh, I'm already reading black hammer or whatever. Pick this up. This was fantastic. I'm giving it a buy it. Great job. Enough of last week. Let's jump to this week with star Trek colon Picard colon stargazer. Number one from IDW. I don't know if it's even legal to use two colons like that. It's no, I don't think you do. I think you, I think it's probably star Trek colon Picard. M dash Stargazer. <laughs> it's four ninety nine. This is written by Kristen Bayer and Mike Johnson, with art by Angel Hernandez. Here's your solicit: Embark on a never before seen journey set between seasons two and three of Paramount Plus's hit series Star Trek Picard. After a tantalizing offer to return among the stars arises, Captain Jean Luc Picard takes to the bridge of the USS Stargazer. But when trouble rears its head on a once peaceful pre-warp planet from his past. Picard enlists the help of an old friend. Bayer and Johnson do a really nice job here, writing each character's dialogue and personality. The story is solid. It does jump around a bit. You've got Picard at Starfleet, Picard at the Chateau for a minute, and then back at Starfleet aboard the Stargazer, which he used to command. Angel Hernandez is very solid on art. I could not get past the inking, though. It seems like someone forgot to ink this comic. The colors feel almost like uncontained in some panels and way too soft. And on a lot of pages, it makes for some strange faces at times. The ships look great and Hernandez captures the actors that play these characters very well. But I needed some like stronger inks or something. There was just something really soft about it. I like this better than the second season of Picard. I'm glad we're done with Chateau antics. And let me ask, just an aside, is it weird that Picard wanted to move back to the Chateau after not only his mom killed herself there, but his older brother and nephew, who were never mentioned in the, in the last season of Picard, also died in a fire there? That seems kind of odd to me. I don't know. That was forever ago, though. Regardless, that's three dead bodies. People you love and you want to go live there. It's good to see Picard back in space, but maybe he seems a little old and frail for some of these action scenes where he's like trying to haul ass out of a place where people are shooting at him. I guess we'll see how this ties into the third season, but if Picard goes back to the Chateau again, only to be pulled back into space again, I'm going to have some questions. That said, 
I love the Stargazer. It's one of my favorite ships. This issue has some good fan service. It sets up a mystery and it refocuses Picard's character's story after a rocky end to the last season of the show. I'm giving this a strong skimming. Okay, I had to go back and look at this again because I couldn't figure out what you were talking about with the inking. It's not that it's not inked. It's that the inks are not black. Is that what it is? Which is th- what's throwing you off. Yeah, the ink. So the inks, the outlines match the color of whatever they're outlining or they complement. So yeah, like it was kind of when the inks are when they're, he's inking around a face, the ink line is flesh toned when he's inking like around a co- a uniform like this Vulcan or uh, this Romulans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a dark blue. So it's uh, yeah. And when he, he's inking the warbird, it's dark green. So but the like, good thing the with the warbird is the outlines in, match the thing. The warbirds in space though. So there's a black background to give it like contrast when they're like in a ship or something. It almost just looks like they're glowing because of it. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And I think that's just your like lifelong comic book brain, not being able to get past it. But when you look at things in real life, things in real life don't have a hard black outline either. I agree. But things in real life aren't comic books. What did you think of this art? Uh, but what did they're you think not of glowing, it? but I don't think like, I, like I understand, uh, like I, I'm just saying that's what's going on with the art. Um, I thought that the art was good. I thought that the story was fine. Um, you know, it's fine. Uh, yeah, like it's fine. It's not like I don't have, I don't really have anything bad to say about it. I kind of agree. Like the idea of Jean-Luc Picard at age. I mean, I, so Picard is is old. Um, he does have an artificial body, which we know from the end of season one. True. Even so, artificial body Picard in real life, Patrick Stewart's old ass body. Yeah doesn't really translate to action hero and so it is kind of weird seeing them like jump around in like away team scenes where they're getting attacked by you know mad max aliens or whatever um it's a skimmit from me working on a comic like this is a kind of a thankless job though when you're writing these like prequels to a tv show that very few people that watch the show are gonna read because they're not gonna be like Remember that thing we did in the comic book in between seasons? You know, they're not going to. Yeah, I mean, they're never going to address it. No, right. no, 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 no. But I mean, yeah, it's it's fine. It's it's decent. But like, I also would not have cared if I didn't yeah. read it. Yeah. So uh, I don't. Uh, sorry if that makes me a bad person. Didn't anybody build ships in bottles when they were boys? I never played with them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like comics about gladiators? Do I? <laughs> You're in luck. It's the Superman War World Apocalypse special. That's a really hard sentence to say. Yeah. War World. War World. <laughs> uh, War World is a hard word just by itself. It's from DC Comics. It's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Brandon Peterson and Will Conrad. Uh, Max Rayner and Miguel Mendoncia are also listed as artists. I put that in quotes in the credits because it just has a list of artists. I think that they might be the inkers. They're they're, they're inking the two that are named in the solicit. I'll bet that's what's going on. And speaking of the solicit, here it is. It has all led to this, the final battle between Superman and Mongol and between the authority and Mongol's unmade champions. 
The identity of the hooded stranger has been revealed, uncovering a shocking betrayal that threatens to crush Superman's rebellion forever. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. It doesn't matter. Like, forget forget that part because I'll never mention that again. But as the fate of War World relies on Superman, the last chance to return his powers now lies with Natasha. And this part is important. And John Henry Irons. Yeah. Now, Matt, I'm asking this now because I will forget by the time it's over. John Henry Irons is not in this comic book. Joe, I cannot confirm or deny that. I'll be perfectly honest (laughs) because I know Natasha was here. Although there's a character that's saying like N dash T A S H A. And I went, Oh, okay. And then later they said something about iron. Oh yeah. It's, it's like they're abbreviating. Oh, I'm going to mention that as well. It's like Natasha. If John is here, Joe, I read this twice. If John is here. Why? I honestly can't tell you. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Steel is not here. I will say that there is if well, there's no steel, steel is steel is steel is here. If you count Natasha Irons as steel, which she does sometimes go by, but she's not wearing any armor or anything. She's uh, running around. Irrele- irrelevant. All right, all right. Uh, from the visionary creative team of Philip Kennedy Johnson, Brandon Peterson, and Will Conrad, Empires Fall and Rise, and the Fourth World is reborn again. What? Uh, in this jaw-dropping final chapter. Okay, like, again, there's nothing about the fourth world in this comic. Anyway, anyway, Joe, anyway. I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I don't anyway. know. <laughs> okay. War World Apocalypse brings Philip Kennedy Johnson's long-running Superman in Space saga to an end, and it is a jumbled mess. Yes, it is the final chapter of a lengthy storyline, but... It's also a separate one shot, which means that DC is betting that even more people than have been reading action comics will check it out. People like me and Matt. Unfortunately, Johnson doesn't hold any hands here at all. Nothing is recapped. Nothing is explained. And most of the characters are referred to by their first names or nicknames. So, if you didn't know that Leah and M-A-C-K Mac are the Tangent Universe Flash and the brand new OMAC from Grant Morrison's Superman and the Authority series, Uh, I'm afraid you're out of luck. I am shocked (laughs) to hear this. I have no idea. uh, We're we're getting there. I feel like a child that's wandered into a movie theater. (laughs) First of all, why would OMAC be shortened to Mac with a K? There's no K in that name. Yeah. It's not even that there's anything wrong with the script or plot per se, but it is nearly impossible to follow without having a cliff's notes of the rest of the storyline on hand. The art is a real mixed bag as well. I liked Will Conrad's half of the issue better than Brandon Peterson's, I think, but only barely. Uh, It's also impossible to keep track of who's who in the issue, thanks to characters covered in head-to-toe armor or alien goo. And Lee Loffridge's muddy colors uh, are just, they're just shades of brown and gray, and sometimes flashes of green and yellow, but it doesn't help. And I get that things are supposed to look bleak on War World, but still. It might be unfair to judge this issue without being up to speed on PKJ's action comics run, but DC chose to market this as a separate one shot. 
instead of standing on its own and maybe getting me interested in going back to see what I missed, which is what it should have done. It makes me kind of glad I skipped the whole thing. I'm giving this a leave it. And if they had just made this action comics number 1048 or whatever, I we would not be having this conversation. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you there. And I'm going to do it. I also would not be reviewing this book. That's true. I'm going to do a thing that you hate. I don't know if this is Philip Kennedy Johnson's fault. No, no, no. It's 100% a marketing failure. Right. It's a marketing failure, but I'm going to take it a step further because I just read the issue. Didn't know what was happening. Read it again. It was one of those things where, again, I thought, oh, shit, I'm too stoned to read this. And then I realized I'm not stoned. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I wasn't stoned at all. You're not. You weren't stoned enough to read. I was completely sober. And I didn't know any of this fourth world BS that you mentioned. Like when you said it, there's nothing about this that has anything to do with the fourth world. My eyes light up in the zoom. I was just like, what? What? (laughs) I knew none of this. So it leads me to believe that Philip Kennedy Johnson had an idea where he was building towards something and someone in editorial went, nah, we're not doing that yet. (laughs) Well, you know what? Here's some fuel for the conspiracy fire. When I was putting together the review, I had looked up the solicit, right? As we do. I swear to God, I saw two different versions. I'm sure I I believe it. Because the version of the solicit that I pasted in here was not the one that I thought that I read the first time. I totally believe it. I I feel like he was doing a thing and I don't know if Dark Crisis got in the way because something's going to happen there. (laughs) It it leads me to believe that something is going to happen there that is different and like, no, we're doing a fourth world thing there. Because the end of this, they're talking about like, Durlins and they're talking about like there's nothing fourth world going on well the no there's uh, as far as I know uh, like there's a weird alien baby in a jar but I don't think that's the fourth world what the hell was that, that yeah I like, don't, I don't, I don't even know. know what that is right and and uh, like OMAC is not fourth world no war world is not fourth world no none of this is and uh, so but that's beside the point like I, who knows I don't have any right. clue and now, um, now it is our fault for not reading any of this Superman and space stuff. I, I just didn't, you know, I was reading other stuff, whatever it got away from me. I think Philip Kennedy Johnson is a good writer. I think he put a lot of thought into this, but DC to market this as a one shot, this betrays the very idea of a one shot. A one shot is here's the thing. And if you've never checked out this character before, you can get on board. You can check out this thing. That is impossible. That is impossible yeah, no. here. Even for people who know Superman and dig Superman, like we're Superman fans. I picked this up. He's wearing a totally different costume. He doesn't have any powers. I don't know what the hell is going on. Mongol is basically unrecognizable as well. Like I did not know that was Mongol at first. <laughs> this is a mess. This is a failure. And I don't blame the creative team. I'm blaming DC for this. Uh, well, I'm partially blaming the creative team. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to be as hard on the art as I you I think were. it's a failing on, I think it's a failing on the art because you don't take a character like Mongol who is yellow and wears a bright purple outfit. And put him in an all gray onesie and then have him tromping around in the mud. Unless you've been doing this for issues and issues and issues now. And that is Mm. part of the story. I don't know. All I know is this is a failure. And I I find it hard to blame the creative team. I'm giving it a leave it as well. And I think this is DC editorial saying, hey, PKJ, we like what you do with Superman. It's really, really cool, man. But, uh, 
You can't use those ideas. So we're just going to end it we over gotta here. Wrap it up. And uh, boom. we got to we got to wrap it up because Dark Crisis is coming, and exactly. people are going to start wondering why Superman's not in the books anymore. Exactly. And, uh, also, also, in two months, we are doing another one shot called Kal El Returns. Mm -hmm. I don't think PKJ was invited. I don't think so either. Um, but yeah, no, this is a this is totally a failure. This should have been an issue of Action Comics that caps off the storyline. Yeah, whether it's Johnson's last issue or not, I, I have nothing against the guy. If he wants to keep writing Action Comics, I think he's a really good writer. Him. I think he's a very yeah. good writer. But this should have been an end of uh, the end of a long storyline within the pages of Action Comics. I chose this to prove a point because yeah. people are going to be buying this. People are going to be pre-ordering it. You know, ask they're based on like the cover or whatever. They're going to be like, "Ooh, pull that for me," and then they're going to be stuck with it and not know what the right. hell they're reading. Never mind the fact that this Superman versus Authority stuff also took place in really, really weird continuity. I we have yeah. no idea where or well, when that like, was, and they've so, got characters from that book. The British guy with the purple hair wearing the British flag. Yeah, like yeah. that's Manchester Black. Oh, and I and I'm pretty sure they just called him Chest. Yeah, because I didn't like that. I did not yeah. even know that's who that was, and I know that character, Joe. I'm a fan of that character. No, for sure. I he, looked like, right at him and went, "Who is that supposed to be?" Yeah, no, I one hundred percent. I like I I figured out that it was the Authority because Midnighter and the Apollo were there. I knew they were there, but I knew Midnighter uh, was also Mid there. Midnighter and the Apollo. What I knew Midnighter was there at the beginning of all this space stuff, so I got that. I didn't realize, like, yeah. oh, shit, the but authority yeah, it, it, is here and Mid stuff. Midnighter, Apollo, Manchester Black, and I, Natasha Irons was also in that book. And so there was enough going on that I was like, oh, it's the authority. Um, and then I had to Google who the hell those other characters were because yeah. it's, like, unrecognizable. I had no clue. This is a leave um, I And I, you know what? We're done. This is a leave it. <laughs> I still stop. couldn't tell you who, anything about the hooded figure that is supposed to bring balance to the no force clue. or whatever. No clue. I, it's, uh, he was like one-eyed mean Obi-Wan is what he looked like. I he don't know. Like a, <laughs> and he had kind of like a Kryptonian name. Is he Kryptonian? I well, don't know. Well, he mentions like being connected to Krypton. And I went, huh? Oh, see, I, <laughs> like, what? I glossed, I glossed right over that. Right. But like we said, failure. Yeah. It's birthday time in the ziggurat because we're talking amazing fantasy. Number 1000 from Marvel. It's $7.99. This is written by Anthony Falcone, Rainbow Rowell, Dan Slott, Hochi Anderson, with art by Ryan Stegman, Todd Nauk, Marco Cicchetto, Terry Dodson. There's more. I'm missing some. I apologize. Okay. Neil Gaiman's up in there. Neil Gaiman's all up in here. Here's your solicit. The comic that brought you Spider-Man hits issue 1000 through some bizarre I don't think you have to yell 1000 numbers always look like that <laughs> yeah i guess so through some bizarre marvel math that i don't understand we're going big to celebrate in this our thousandth issue of amazing fantasy an all-star roster of creators are coming together to celebrate peter parker and spider-man's birthdays Cho and Falcone write a heartfelt letter to uncle ben with spidey taking time to arrest an old-time thief between crossover events, Slot and Chung hit you with the future of Spidey's actual 60th birthday with amazing spreads by Jimmy Chung. And Slot made me cry a little. Raul and Koipel take a minute to focus on Peter the photographer. Jonathan Hickman writes a funny Spidey story out of nowhere. I didn't even know that guy could be funny. Starring every <laughs> Spidey in the multiverse and the Stargate from Stargate. Like any of these big birthday celebrations, there is a lot to love here. Not 
every story got to me. The Hochi Anderson one was a little weird, but you know, the Neil Gaiman one left me scratching my head for a minute, but it did end very well. I will say I am a total mark for these big birthday celebrations. This is packed full of incredible art, wonderful little Spider-Man vignettes. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Spider-Man's 60th than with a group of creators like this with so much reverence and respect for this character. I think the best thing that I read in here was Spider-Man's actual 60th birthday. Yeah, the Dan Slott story was really great. God, that story was great. It stood apart, yeah. I'm giving this a buy it. It is worth all $8. If you love Spider-Man, you're going to feel right at home. Go pick this up. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything else to add. It's, uh, you know, uh, anthologies, we're always saying it. They're hit and miss. This one is almost all hits. I agree. It's a great way to celebrate Spider-Man's anniversary. You can tell that the creators involved really have a deep abiding love for Spider-Man. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, you don't get results like this without that kind of appreciation of the character. It's a, it's a buy it. It's great. Had you told me Jonathan Hickman was going to make me laugh out loud three times in one Spider-Man story, I would have been like, ah, Sure. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> He's great. You know, the guy's, guy's got Wrapping it up this week is Thunderbolts number one from Marvel Comics. It's written by Jim Zub with art by Sean Isaacs. Here's your solicit. Like lightning. Superpowered crooks have taken hostages in Staten Island. A dimensional rift tears open in Chinatown. Monsters running amok at the Met. Call in the thunder. New York City's finest are here to save the day. Hawkeye, Spectrum, America Chavez, Power Man, Persuasion, and Gunson Glory. Yeah, that guy. You know him, you love him, they're the Thunderbolts. In the aftermath of Devil's Reign, the Big Apple has big problems, and it's up to a new group of Thunderbolts to turn things around. But when Clint Barton gets tasked with heading up this team and proving they can go toe-to-toe with anything the Marvel Universe can throw at him, the first opponent he's going to have to face is himself. Writer Jim Zub seems to thrive when he's allowed to play around the fringes of the Marvel Universe. His run on Champions was fun and underrated. Now he's back reviving another classic Marvel concept, one near and dear to my heart. Zub's script captures the voices of well-known characters like Hawkeye and Luke Cage really well. Luke especially feels true to form, despite a current status quo that's completely unexpected for the character. I also really enjoy the balanced approach between competent hero and complete screw-up when it comes to Hawkeye. Uh, Whenever he's too far in either direction, it's a little iffy for me. And it leads to some fun revelations in this issue. When Wilson Fisk's villainous Thunderbolts from Devil's Reign attempt a jailbreak, Mayor Cage assembles a new, highly focused, tested team to take them down. The new team is good at what they do, but they have a lot of learning to do when it comes to operating as a unit. Always a fun super team dynamic. Zub delivers a solid superhero story, but also has a lot of fun with it. I especially liked how everyone involved knows how ridiculous Guts and Glory's name is, and how, while the rest of his teammates are focused on escaping, Taskmaster's vanity forced him to attempt to recreate his hooded cape and mask look out of a torn-up prison jumpsuit. Artist Sean Isaacs very much occupies that traditional superhero realm where you'd find guys like Mark Bagley and Carlos Pacheco. In fact, I thought Isaacs was actually channeling Bagley with some of his layouts. It's not the flashiest style on the stands, but his storytelling is clear, 
concise, and visually appealing. My one complaint is the tendency of colorist Java Tartaglia to add implied speed lines to the art in an attempt to show movement. What are speed lines? It's when you have a character throwing a punch or swinging a bow. Or when the flash see, runs. When the flash <laughs> runs. You see lines cutting through the air to right. imply that it is on some sort of trajectory. Um, they are not present in Isaac's line art, but Tartaglia does add them with coloring and it makes uh, it has the opposite effect and it makes the line art look frozen in time. The artist didn't draw them in. Don't add them in. Yeah. Thunderbolts number one is the closest thing to a return to form that we've seen for the Thunderbolts in a long time. While I do wish it leaned more into the classic villains trying to make good format, I still had a lot of fun with this issue, and it does make sense with the whole idea of the like focus testing and 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 the public relations stuff. So I'm giving this a buy it. I really liked it, uh, and maybe maybe the uh, lineup will evolve. I think you enjoyed this more than I did. Um, I saw this a little more as a missed opportunity. I think we just had a whole group of villains working for an evil mayor running around New York as the Thunderbolts. I would have liked to have seen a few of them stick behind and say, Hey, I'm tired of this. I just want to be good. I just want to be good. Like even the taskmaster, how much fun would that to bring in Hawkeye? He's leading the team and the taskmaster's like, I don't want to break out of jail. I just don't want to be a bad guy anymore. I need a way out. And if this is my way out, fine. I had a legit, I don't buy I don't I, buy that for Taskmaster. No, sure, but, but I'm just saying, what you're saying I had a legit job for a minute. It felt good. And like I sure. realized I was working for a bad guy. Like the rhino. Right. You know, like if the rhino is yeah. but I was obeying sure. the law, you know, and this was the law, and it felt good. I want to be here. Give me a chance. And I would buy that a little more, especially with Luke Cage. I, I had a little trouble believing that Luke Cage was like, oh yeah, this is what all the, all the testing says and what all the people want. And like the, look at the Q ratings. Like that doesn't sound like Luke Cage to me. I would buy Luke Cage giving some like street level villains, another shot and trusting Hawkeye to lead them and having maybe even us agent is on that team. And like, look, you have to co-lead, figure it out. I know you guys hate each other, figure it out because I know he's not a bad guy, but you know, like <laughs> I, I would like to find a little more of that. And this there is a fun twist as to why Hawkeye decides he gets to beat up the US. Right. There is. <laughs> I just wish this came off as a little bit of a missed opportunity for me. And I don't care about a lot of these characters that are on the team. They're cute and whatever. Guts and glory. It's funny. He kind of looks like a cable knockoff and they're and he they're looks poking like cable, yeah, but he stuff. Clearly sums up with him. Yeah. Right. The art I thought was pretty good. And I haven't been a big Isaacs fan. I thought this is some of the best stuff I've seen from him. I thought it looked really good. I, you're right. There was some uh, weirdness with the coloring there, but it didn't bother me that much. I'm giving this a skim it. I don't think it's terrible, but I think it's a missed opportunity. Quite honestly. I mean, and I, I like, like I Thunderbolts you... as bad guys trying to be good guys. This is a yes. cool chance it, to do that. Some heel turns, you know? Okay. Right. Not Matt, I understand all of those things. And I even agree with you, but I think in the wake of what Kingpin did to the Thunderbolts name in Devil's Reign, this makes sense as a temporary status quo. This is only a five issue miniseries. Sure. And so like, uh, like in based on the conceit of the, of the story thus far, I'm like, okay, yeah, 
Luke Cage is invested in redeeming the name of the Thunderbolts. He doesn't give a shit about Q ratings, but he's got people whispering in his ear that tell him, okay, you got to put on this Latina character and you got to put on this. I totally get it. Like, and so I just would like to see him for now. I'm willing to go with it. I would like to see him buck that system and be like, no, you know what? These guys want to do the work. Let's let him do the work. I mean, it's his first first week as mayor. I get it. (laughs) Let Let the guy get used to the job. Not terrible. Just not what I was hoping for the Thunderbolt. Check out our ludicrous speed reviews over at twoheadednerd.com. They're back. If you want to hear reviews of more new comics that we read, if you want to know more about these comics that we just talked about, check out our show notes. You can find links with more info to all these books and hit us up on our Discord to give us your thoughts of these comics and our reviews. Joe, before we move on, we have to do as we do and pick one of these comics, the best comic you read this week in this pilot, to enter the THN private collection because it wouldn't be a show unless we made it in the contest, right? Yeah, right. Uh, well, you know what, Matt? I've got to go with the book that caught me completely off guard. I went into it knowing absolutely nothing about the story, and it's got to be Superman War World Apocalypse. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's Minor Threats. Minor Threats is absolutely the best thing I read all week. I loved it. I yeah, loved it so much. I, I think so, too. Uh, that end after end is right behind it, but Minor Threats was just so... Nerfed, end after end was real good. So clever and just fun and both tremendous artists, too. It was really close for me, but yeah, I think I got to go with Minor Threats. Matt, the defenses seem to be holding against the angry pumpkin spice mom for now. There, just oh, I, I had no idea it's gonna come down on this car. You don't mess with them. You don't mess with and the we're PSL. mowing them down with our machine. <laughs> they don't care. The thing is, is that they have the numbers. They yeah. have the numbers. Why don't we head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum so we can lay our must-read picks for Wednesday, September seventh, on these listeners? Sounds good. My pick for next week. It's another Star Trek comic. It's Star Trek number 400. I can't get enough of this birthday stuff. It's from IDW. It's $7.99. It's written by Will Wheaton, Chrissy Leopolis, Mike Johnson, Louis D. Martinez. I hope it's Martinez. It's probably Martinez. Declan Shavley is writing. And Rich Handley with art by Luke Sparrow, Seth DeMoose, Megan Levins, Angel, and Hell Hernandez, and Joe Isma. Here's your solicit. Celebrate IDW's 400th issue of Star Trek comics with this monumental issue highlighting fan favorite eras of the acclaimed series. This collection of minis brings together Star Trek comics veterans in an equal celebration of IDW's Star Trek comics past and future. Join little Kayla Detmer as seen in Star Trek Discovery Adventures in the 32nd century number three on a new expedition. Okay. Visit the Kelvin universe. Witness a heartfelt tale by TNG's very own Will Wheaton. It goes on and on and on after that. I cut it off. Look, IDW has done a fantastic job with their Star Trek line. It doesn't always hit 100%, but I've never read an IDW Star Trek comic that I said, this is garbage. I'm putting it down. I don't think I've ever given one to leave it. Mike Johnson has done an excellent job stewarding this property at IDW. He works very closely with everybody that works on the TV shows and the movies as well. You can't go wrong with IDW Star Trek. If you're looking for good Star Trek comics, look no further. My pick of the week is Last Line and number one from Aftershock. It's $4.99. It's written by Richard Dinnick with art by Jose Holder. Here's your solicit. 
Sally Hazard just had the worst day of her life. While on a usual shift as a driver for the tube, the unthinkable happened when a man is pushed in front of her train and killed. But there's something strange here. Sally swears the man was pushed, but her supervisors, witnesses, and the CCTV footage all show the man falling on his own. Sally cannot let this go, and her investigation into the murder introduces her to an MI6 agent named Edward Tarn, also curious about the so-called accident. Together, Sally and Ed discover an off-world explanation for the assassination, plus an alien invasion, and the craziest plot twist of all, an interplanetary travel system buried deep beneath the London underground. If this sounds like a Doctor Who story, guess what? You're right, <laughs> because this is written by Richard Dinnick, who has written things like Doctor Who the Twelfth Doctor, Thunderbirds Are Go!, Lost in Space, Countdown to Danger, and more. It's drawn by Jose Holder, who wrote or who worked on X-Men Apocalypse, Assassin's Creed Origins, and Rainbow Six Siege. Those are not the names of comic books, uh, so he must uh, be like a concept artist or something. I, I don't know. I would guess, yeah. You know, it, again, it's kind of a light week next week, but this just caught my eye as like a weird, like, high concept sci-fi thing where it's not like spaceships are descending on Buckingham palace. No, it's like we found a space subway buried underneath the London underground. Yeah. It's very worn out. Like I love right? that kind of stuff. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun. And also there's this murder mystery. Like I'm on board. The art looked nice. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Last line. Number one from aftershock. The THN trade of the week. For September 7th goes to Everyday Hero, Machine Boy, the graphic novel. It's from Image Comics. It's $12.99. That is a deal, man. Give me a break. Written by Irma Navila and Tree Vuong with art by Tree Vuong and Irma Navila. I know. I liked how they alternated the names. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your solicit. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Machine Boy. When Machine Boy falls from the sky into the domed city of Mega 416, he leaves a wake of destruction in his path. Until Karate Grandpa is able to turn on his heart. Now Machine Boy wants nothing more than to become a hero. I wish Karate Grandpa was my grandpa. Whether he is fighting giant bugs in the school's basement, rescuing cats from trees, or making the perfect spaghetti sauce, Machine Boy is always looking for the best way to help others. When his heart begins to interact dangerously with other debris from space, Machine Boy wonders if he can be a power for good after all. Rising stars Tree Vuong, who worked on Lego Ninjago, and Irma Navila, who worked on Year of the Dog, present a funny and engaging adventure that asks, can you override your own programming? This sounds like a love letter to Astro Boy to me. Yep. And Astro Boy, Mega yeah, Man, totally. like all that kind of like kid robot. The art you know. looks adorable and good. Not just like kitty, but really solid. But like too. legit good, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can find links with more info on our picks in our show notes, and we always post our must-read picks on our Discord, Twitter, and Facebook every Wednesday, so you can make an informed buying decision at your local comic shop. But let us know what you thought of our picks in the new comics channel on our Discord. Five, four, three, two, one... Before we get out of here, it's time for a sneak peek of our Patreon Extra. When you, 
whatever reason, support THM on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You get access to all kinds of extra content just like this. Welcome to another THN Patreon Extra. This time, it's yet another edition of the THN Top 5, the one that we fall back on. Well, we can't think of anything else. But hey, it's still fun, and it's almost Labor Day, and we were looking for an excuse to talk about our Top 5 Hardest Working Heroes for Hire. We're talking heroes that punch a clock, heroes that need a paycheck, heroes that understand they gots to get paid. You gotta, you gotta work for a living. That's right, baby. Uh, we do, we do do a lot of top fives. We do do a lot of top fives. They're fun though, because it's an excuse to do weird stuff and talk about things. Well, and I also, I think it's also because we don't remember we need a segment until it's far too late to ask somebody to sit in with us for something special. There is also that. The take a look or whatever. That is also a thing. Joe Patrick, please give the rules. We start with five. Countdown to number one. Would you like to start? That's how top fives work. You are correct. Um, I can start. My number five is Silver Sable and or the Wild Pack. With or without the Wild Pack. Silver's first appearance was Amazing Spider-Man 265 by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Uh, as I said, Silver Sable's whole thing is that she hunts down war criminals. Specifically, Nazis. She is from the small... Yeah, uh, you know, it's vaguely Eastern Bloc coded, yeah. so it might be technically Asian. Um, nation of Simcaria, which as a kid I always thought was Skymaria. But no, it's Simcaria, S-M-S-Y-M-K-A-R-I-A. And the profits from her enterprises, Silver Sable International, they actually feed the economy of the entire country. And so basically Simcaria's chief national export is hunting Nazi war criminals. Or at least it's Silver Sable. She's the chief yeah, national right. export. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, when she's not hunting uh, Nazis, she is taking a paycheck, uh, usually on the side of angels. Like, I don't know if that I've ever read a storyline where Sable is overtly taking money to be a villain. No, she's not a bad um, guy. She's never been a bad guy. She's now... Now, sometimes she is, like... She operates on her own. Right. And sometimes like her Simcarian job maybe butts up against U.S. interests or something. I did. I, I do think she actually worked for Jonah when he was the mayor. Okay. Uh, or something. Something happened. She was involved in Dan Slott's run in a way that put her at odds with Spider-Man. But like she's abiding by the law. She is an employee. Usually the Wild Pack is just like her group of, you know, soldiers. In the 90s, they were like a G.I. Joe style. Uh, like code named costumed super team, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Walker, U.S. agent's former partner, Battlestar, was a member for a while. Sandman was a member for yeah, a while. Yeah, a lot of reform criminal. I'm sorry, not Sand. I'm, I'm I'm wrong about Sandman. He was a member of something called the Outlaws. That's different. But Battlestar was definitely See, but uh, like, in it. Wasn't that what, Outlaws just like another group of the Wild Pack? Because when I was reading about it, it was like then the Wild Pack had these members and they called themselves the outlaws and then the wild pack had these members and they called themselves the whatever like it was always the wild um, pack but like they were like different groups of the wild well pack. To, uh, to me uh, well according to my memory my admittedly hazy memory um the outlaws were a group of reformed spider-man villains rocket racer 
Prowler, Puma, Prowler, Willow the Wisp. I don't think they were members of the Wild Pack, were they? It's a Sable. Does it say they were members of the Wild Pack? Sable and the Wild Pack employed several of these men as an elite sub team. Oh, there you go. Outlaws. They existed like they they like they formed in the nineties in uh, Web of Spider Man number fifty. So they existed, you know, separate from the Wild Pack. But there you go. Employed by the Wild Pack by Silver Sable. There you go. Uh, but yeah, that's my number five. Uh, fun fact about Silver Sable and the Wild Pack. Cable's former band of mutant mercenaries was forced to change their name True. from Wild Pack to Six Pack by Silver Sable International's lawyers. Yeah, and they came up with they it got a cease while and they desist. were drinking beer. They were saying, why don't we call ourselves a Six Pack? Burp, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think that's hilarious. Yeah, it's like, great. Why would, why, would a, why would a band of mutant mercenaries give a shit? But right. whatever. And why didn't the like ex editors be like, "Hey guys, there's already a wild pack out there." No. <laughs> um, I honestly, I honestly don't know the timing of that. I don't know if. Uh, oh, they were way after the wild pack because they were like '90s, and the wild pack was back before that, like '80s, right? Mm. First appearance, Spider-Man two sixty five, March nineteen eighty five. Yeah, that's the, the first appearance of Silver Sable. Yeah, the Wild Pack appears there too. This, I'm looking at the Wild Pack wiki now. Oh, okay. Yeah, Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 677. Next week, the Cosmic Longbox returns, and it's been watching way too much House of Dragons and Rings of Power because it's got us talking about sword and sorcery and superhero back issue comics. You got your superhero comics in my swords and sorcery fantasy. You got your fantasy in my superhero comics. You get it. If you want to wrap out this week's episode, comics you're reading, or any of the weekly nerdy news that we follow in our nerd news over on the Discord, hit us up on our live call-in show. We call it THN, cover to cover. It happens on Saturdays at 10.30 Central Time, new time. Pay attention. You can watch the broadcast live on our Facebook page, but if you want to play along and talk to us live on the show, you got to join our Discord and learn how to chat or talk with us live. And we set you up with something to talk about. We call it Question of the Week. Joe, what do we got for him this week? Uh, you know, considering that next week's uh, Cosmic Longbox theme was inspired by Willie Toots, perhaps we should call it Swords and Scrolls and Superheroes oh. because that was the name of the segment. Yes. To Willie Toots back when he had a segment on the show. He's got a podcast coming. I am his first guest. Uh, I am also a guest, so you ain't so special. Yeah, I was number one. Whatever. (laughs) Who cares? That doesn't matter. This week's question, once again, comes courtesy of Mark Stern via Discord. There was an issue of Action Comics a few years ago where Superman is in a fight and they fight each other across country. At some point, they're battling across one of my favorite towns, Durango, Colorado. That artist actually used photo reference so you could discern that it really was Durango. So, what is your favorite comic book moment where you notice a real-world background setting? We're saying, what are your favorite and least favorite? When does it go horribly wrong? And we're not talking about world famous places like the Bean in Chicago or Rockefeller Center or anything for the Eiffel Tower. Tower or whatever. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about like, oh man, that's the first national tower in Omaha. Holy right. shit. Places that would not be obviously recognizable to the average reader or landmarks in cities they shouldn't be in. 
If you're new to the show and you'd rather watch a bunch of Gladiator movies rather than listen to any more, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. Good news is... You gotta watch them with Mongol, though. <laughs> the entire run of THN is in our digital longbox archive over at TwoHeadedNerd.com. There is an impossible amount of episodes to listen to. Don't. And, and, Mong- <laughs> and, Mongol, sit- and Mongol sits a little too close, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he doesn't do anything weird. He just sits a little too close. And it stinks. Bad. THN is a listener-supported podcast. There are no showers on Warworld. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, Big Stinky Mark Orenberger. I love the guy. He just doesn't smell great. What can you do? Thanks for donating, Mark. We love you. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash twoheadednerd, where you will hear all kinds of exclusive content. Who knows? Maybe we'll make fun of your body odor, just like we did Mark's. He probably doesn't even have it. I bet he's a good You know what? I have it on good authority that Mark Orenberger smells like a field of freshly cut grass. Fair enough. And if you use Irish Spring when you shower, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal because you are fresh and clean as a whistle. Your Irish accent? Yes, it yes it is. Stop that. As an Irish person, I am offended for all Irish people. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to friend of the show, Phil Hester, who is currently in the middle of his annual fundraiser for the Hero Initiative in honor of Jack Kirby's birthday. After a whirlwind marathon of 100 drawings in honor of Kirby's 100th birthday in 2017, Phil wised up and only started doing larger pieces, one each for each year past 100. Yeah, maybe he got lazier. I don't know. I like, I'm just saying, Phil. Uh, he, regardless, he has raised thousands of dollars for the Hero Initiative this year. The King would have been 105 on August 28th, so Phil is auctioning off five fully inked 11 by 17 pieces with all proceeds going straight to the Hero Initiative to provide support for comic creators in need. Word to you, Phil. You can go to Phil's Twitter page or search the hashtag 105Kirbys to follow along. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might not let you live to see your 105th birthday. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. Jeez. Death threats. I don't want to be 105. I don't even want to be 90. I don't even want to be 45. <laughs> <laughs>